Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, Colonel, we've made it a fair piece through the Bill of Rights, got through the 17th Amendment last time we visited, the 18th and 21st Amendments, I understand we're going to put on hold for the moment, fun as prohibition may be to discuss, there are some current events that uh, that merit our attention right now. Let's. Uh, where, where would you like to begin? What current event uh, holds the most interest for you? Well, there are two issues that I think we ought to look at, and one of them concerns the confirmation hearings that are going on right now, and the other concerns the proposal by Congresswoman Pelosi to provide some procedures for the 25th Amendment concerning the removal of the president, what to do if the president is disabled, and so on. And let's try to cover both of those today, and let's start with the Senate confirmation hearings. The Judiciary Committee of the Senate is considering the nomination of Amy Coney Bryant for the position of Justice of the United States Supreme Court. She has been nominated by the president to fill the seat that had been occupied by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And anyway, so a couple things to consider on this. First of all, is there any reason why a woman should be appointed to the court just because the predecessor was a woman? No, obviously not. If that were the case, then it'd be also true that we appoint a man to succeed a man, in which case there would never have been any women on the court. So obviously that's not the case at all. But on the other hand, maybe some gender balance there between men and women, there maybe that's a good thing. And so since this was a seat that had been held by a woman, possibly there's good reason to put a woman in just to preserve that kind of balance. And in fact, I believe, or I've been told at least, that when Justice Kennedy resigned and when Trump was considering whom to appoint, he was considering Judge Bryant at that time, but that instead he chose Judge Kavanaugh and he said at that time, I'm told, that I am saving Amy Bryant for Justice Ginsburg's seat. And... Now, Justice Ginsburg obviously was one of the more liberal justices on the court. I would say she was probably less liberal than Justice Sotomayor, but also probably a lot sharper than Justice Sotomayor, too. But at any rate, there is no reason from the Constitution that we have to reserve these seats are for liberals, these seats are for conservatives. These are for Republicans, these are for Democrats or Federalists or Anti-Federalists or whatever it might be. No, there's no such provision whatsoever. But, and in fact, even though Justice Bryant is a woman, her views would be quite different from Justice Ginsburg in most respects. Now, the procedure that we follow here is that the president makes the nomination The Senate then decides by a simple majority whether to advise and consent to the nomination. And what exactly that means to advise and consent, it essentially means the Senate will 
confirm the nomination. And there's a question that a lot of people raise just about any time we have a controversial court appointment. What may the senators consider in deciding whether to confirm or deny? And, for example, is a conservative or Republican president entitled to have a conservative Republican nominee confirmed by the court? Well, there are some who believe that, and some, in fact, this has been kind of an unspoken agreement for many decades that this is the way it would be, that if the president is a Democrat and appoints a Democrat to one of the federal courts, we will not obstruct that appointment unless there is some reason to say that particular nominee is unqualified other than just that we disagree with that nominee's particular philosophy or partisan affiliation. So no reason they have to, but customarily they have. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, even during the Obama era, we would find that most liberal appointees by President Obama would be confirmed overwhelmingly by the court and the Republicans, or I mean by the Senate, and the Republicans on the Senate would generally say, we're going to save our fire only for those who, in addition to being liberal, also have some other qualities like incompetence, corruption, or dishonorable character, or other things like this. And so they say commonly Obama's nominees would sail through the confirmation process with an overwhelming support, even though many senators voting for those justices would have personally been opposed to those justices' philosophy. Likewise, Democrats commonly would vote to confirm the nominees of Republican justices. And Pat Amy Bryant, when she was nominated some years ago for the Court of Appeals, she received overwhelming confirmation, even though it was pretty clear that some of the Democrats did not like her political philosophy, and even though Senator Feinstein of California commented about her Catholicism and said, your dogma sticks out all over you, and that is a matter of concern. Well, maybe it's a matter of concern to Senator Feinstein. It was not a matter of concern to me. The plain fact of the matter is, Every judge has a philosophy of law, and that philosophy is going to be shaped in part by the worldview that judge holds, which in turn is going to be shaped by that judge's religion. And there is no question that Justice Ginsburg, a Jewish justice, that her Jewish faith influenced her views of human rights and other issues like this, and hardly anybody would say that's inappropriate. But Right now, we are going through a confirmation period with Judge Bryant and see whether she is going to become Justice Bryant. Right now, it is looking like she will. She will need a majority, and we have 53 Republicans and two of them, and those being Murkowski of Alaska and Collins of Maine, has said that they would not vote to confirm a justice nominee during this election year, or at least until after the election is over. Now, whether that means 
when this comes to a vote, that they will vote no, or whether it just means that they will abstain and vote present, we don't know. If they were to simply vote present, then all we would need would be 49 votes and 49 votes in opposition, and then that would mean that Vice President Pence, who presides over the Senate, would cast the deciding vote. And I might add, too, that Senator Romney of Utah, who has broken with the president on some issues, has said that he will vote to confirm a nominee during the election period, if, of course, that nominee is qualified. Now, what does advise and consent mean? The plain fact of the matter is the Constitution doesn't define what it means. And going through the notes from the Constitutional Convention, that doesn't give us very much idea at all. And so it seems that it can mean just about anything that the senators decide they want it to mean. And it seems like they can decide to vote yes or no on this for whatever reasons they choose, including disagreeing with the judge's political philosophy or legal philosophy. What they'll do in this case, we don't really know for sure. I would say this, that from what I've seen so far, Judge Bryant has handled herself in these hearings very well. Some people have expressed concern that she's been evading questions. Well, there's a reason for that, and that's that if a judge takes a position on how she will vote on a particular matter like Roe versus Wade, then if that if a case like that ever comes before the court, the court is the, the parties trying the case aren't going to feel like they got a fair hearing if a judge has already said previously, here's what I'm going to do. And so it's only appropriate that a judge refuse to answer questions like that. The Democrat senators here are trying to trap Judge Bryant, and she so far has resisted their bait. Okay. On that note, we will break quickly, pay a couple of bills. You are listening to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And we have some more events of, of a current nature that we want to discuss when we continue. And again, we invite you to check out the archives of Constitution Classroom at the Loving Liberty Radio Network website. It's lovingliberty.net. We'll be back right after this. Facebook recently announced an update to Instagram DMs by introducing a new Messenger experience in the app. More than a billion people already use Messenger. They are bringing some of the best Messenger features to Instagram. I'm Adam Mosseri. I'm the head of Instagram. I'm excited to talk to you today about some of the new messaging features we've got coming out. One of the features I'm most excited about is the fact that people are going to be able to message across apps. So you're going to be able to message your friends on Facebook or on Instagram and vice versa. Now, this isn't going to change who you can message or who you can message you. You're still in complete control of both of those things. In fact, we've even built some new controls that are more granular that allow you to decide who exactly can message you. But you'll be able to manage your messages from one app should you so choose. And we think that's critically important, and we also think it's critically important that people have control over their experience. For more information, please visit the Facebook newsroom at about.fb.com news. 
If your credit card bills have gotten out of hand and you care about your credit, call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800-406-0046. That's 800-406-0046. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc. 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM 1492. Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation. Commission license number DC83. Service may adversely affect the individual's credit. Non-payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action, not a loan company. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now. 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. policy points and availability vary by state. Once again, we welcome you back to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, Colonel, you've been talking about the uh, Senate confirmation hearings and uh, some of the considerations. I appreciate your explanation, too, of why a nominee should not allow himself or herself to be pinned down as to taking a hard stance on a, on a position one way or another. Um, I mean, impartiality really matters, doesn't it? It certainly does. And way back in 1987, when President Reagan had nominated Robert Bork, a very qualified intellectual judge, solicitor general and the like, to, for the Supreme Court, he went through a grueling confirmation process. And in that process, he really thought that he could educate the judges or, or the senators. And he gave detailed explanations about his philosophy and how that philosophy would apply in various circumstances. He thought that he could impress them by his intellect, and he did, I think. However, the result of it all was that by a 52 to 48 margin, the Democrats decided that they would not agree to his confirmation, and he was rejected. And in a way, that was a sad thing, because he was a very qualified judge. And there were some who said that we really can't confirm him because he has an agenda about Roe versus Wade and all these other things. My response would be that they have the agenda. He did not. All he wanted to do was to decide cases according to the Constitution as the framers had written and intended the Constitution. And 
whether they wanted a living Constitution approach, that the Constitution means something different, that is what we wanted it to mean today, I'd say it's the very fact that Bork did not have an agenda, or at least did not go along with the liberal agenda that led to his defeat. But one of the results of that confirmation process was that, as Bork said later, when he heard certain women's groups saying they were going to Bork a nomination, he said, I didn't realize I had become a verb. But that seems to be exactly what they are trying to do with Judge Barrett right now. They're trying to Bork her nomination. Maybe someday they'll be saying Barrett's the nomination to by demonstrating as much as they can that this judge would not vote as they want the judge to vote. Now, another thing about this process, too, is when the Constitution says that the Senate will advise and consent, why do we use both those words, advise and consent? Well, I wish we had more to go on in the notes from the debates of the convention, but the plain fact is we don't. We don't know what exactly they meant by it. A suggestion has been made, and this suggestion makes a great deal of sense, but there's no support for it in the notes from the convention, but suggest that advise means that the senators should have a role before the nomination is made, possibly the president submitting a list and the senators selecting several on the list that they would recommend, and then consent, meaning agreeing to the one that the president has decided to nominate, that makes some sense. But again, as I say, you go through the notes from the convention and there is no indication that that is what they were thinking at the time. They simply leave this a mystery as to what advise and consent means, and therefore the senators can really consider just about whatever they want. Another thing I found interesting with Judge Bork's confirmation is that you would find senators asking some pretty well-thought-out questions for maybe just a few minutes. And then they would get to a certain point, and the questions, it seems, would stop. And you wonder why. I suggest the reason why is that the script ran out. In other words, the Senate really didn't have any understanding of these constitutional issues, but was simply reading questions off a script that had been prepared by a staff person. And once the script ran out, the senator had no idea what further to ask, and so he quit asking. And I've seen that take place seemingly in other Senate confirmation hearings as well. But we'll see what happens here with Judge Barrett. I'm thinking that she is likely to be confirmed, and I'm thinking she'll make a very good judge. And so far, you know, the, the tactic that the Democrats have been using by trying to pin this nominee down about particular issues, and then if the nominee won't take a stand, say the nominee is being evasive. If the nominee takes a stand they don't like, saying that, well, for that reason, we're going to vote against this nominee. Or if the nominee is confirmed, then if a case like Roe versus Wade comes before the court, then using the nominee's answers in the confirmation hearing as a basis for saying that you need to recuse yourself from this case. Judge Barrett, I think, has thus far very wisely deflected these questions, and I'm very pleased that she has, because otherwise it could jeopardize her nomination and could 
compromise her on the court. I certainly hope and pray that she'll continue to answer these questions as she has. A couple other questions that are raised here then. Well, what about the fact that judges hold office for life, as it is commonly said? Well, the Constitution doesn't say they hold office for life exactly. It's close. Article 3 says that they serve during good behavior. And that means they can be impeached for bad behavior, which may mean the same things as other federal officials could be impeached for treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Or maybe it means something in addition to that. We really don't know for sure. That's one of the things that is a little vague in the Constitution. But then we have this proposal that Pelosi and others have come up with now that would say that we are going to say that they will have 18-year terms. Well, that by itself would seem blatantly unconstitutional because the Constitution says that they serve during good behavior. There's no limit to their terms. Governor Morris of the Constitutional Convention very much opposed election of federal judges and very much opposed fixed terms for federal judges. He said that otherwise they would be accountable to the the electorate or to those who appointed them and would make their decisions based on how popular they were. And therefore, he said that federal judges should, insofar as possible, be accountable only to God. And that makes a great deal of sense. But Pelosi's bill would say that they serve office for 18 years. They remain a judge after those 18 years. But then... After that 18 years, they are granted senior status, and that means that they'll be taken off the Supreme Court and placed on one of the other courts instead. I think that that will be viewed by any rational court as nothing but a very blatant attempt to get around the good behavior provision of the Constitution. If she ever were successful in getting that through both houses of Congress I, and getting a president to sign it, I don't see any way even a very liberal Supreme Court could uphold that. But anyway, that's the ingenious, but in my opinion, diabolical means they are using to try to get around what the Constitution plainly says, that federal judges hold office during good behavior. I can see some reasons for term limits. And if we were to set a term limit, let's say that federal judges shall serve for, let's say, 15 years, and after that, be ineligible for any other federal office for five years thereafter, I could see some merit in that. However, that would have to be a constitutional amendment. That cannot be done by simply legislation the way Pelosi is trying to do it. It sure seems that the founding generation anticipated that human nature was going to stay pretty constant regardless of what the calendar said. And uh, that's why they put some of those uh, checks and balances, those auxiliary precautions in place to, uh, to avoid uh, the temptation to, to meddle in ways that they shouldn't. Let's take a quick break, Colonel. We'll come back in just a moment on the other side of these commercials. We'll uh, continue our discussion of some current events, some things going on. The 25th Amendment is actually uh, uh, something that has come up for discussion. We'll pick that up right after these messages.
just like that, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you had mentioned that the 25th Amendment is something that has been on a few people's minds lately. Uh, let's talk about that. What is that amendment and, and why is it of importance today? Well, what immediately brings it up is the fact that we have a president today who has gone through a bout with the COVID-19 virus and seems to have survived it very well and seems to be back to full strength. In fact, it doesn't seem like full strength really left him for very much at least and for only a very short time. But anyway, and so Congresswoman Speaker Pelosi, who has just been almost insanely angry at this president, especially in the last several years. I have never seen such a disgraceful spectacle as a Speaker of the House sitting behind the president during the State of the Union address and then publicly in front of the cameras ripping up her copy of that speech. That was disgraceful. But anyway, Pelosi has suggested that because we have a president who I think she believes or would like to believe is not competent to hold office and shouldn't be holding office. And because that president now has had the coronavirus and is on some medications regarding the coronavirus, that there might be some questions about that senator's or that president's fitness to hold office. At least that's the excuse that she is using. And so looking at the 25th Amendment, and how that could be applied for an issue of presidential succession is a matter for consideration. But anyway, there are some who think there might be another reason for this, and that is that we are having an election in just a few weeks, and in the event that Vice President Biden is elected, there are some who believe that he may be in such a condition that he may not be able to exercise the duties of his office for very long, and that the real motive in the legislation that is being proposed here is to pave the way for the vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris, to take over for Biden if Biden and Harris are in fact elected. So what is the 25th Amendment? It's adopted in 1967, and Basically, it provides the current means for presidential succession if the president and the vice president or the vice president are unable to continue holding office. And anyway, the section one is pretty clear and self-explanatory. In the case of the removal of president from office or of his death or resignation, in other words, in case he's impeached and removed or if he resigns as President Nixon did, or if he dies, the vice president shall become president. Now, that was fairly clear, but there was some question, does he become president, or does he simply assume the duties of the president? In other words, is he the president, or is he the acting president? When Willie, William Henry Harrison died in the early 1800s, his vice president, John Tyler, took over. And John Tyler simply announced that he was now the president and not acting president, but president, and he would be the president for the remainder of his term in office. And that seems to have been the general assumption, but just to make clear, this 
now says clearly in this 1967 25th Amendment that the vice president, when the president leaves office, shall become president. Okay, the Constitution was a little less clear about what happens if we lose the vice president. Let's say the president and vice president are killed together in a plane crash, which is not likely because they commonly just avoid being together in a situation like this just to prevent such a disaster from happening. But if for some reason they both were ineligible, then, or if in the other event, if just the vice president became ineligible, as for example, when Spiro Agnew resigned as vice president and was replaced by Gerald Ford, or when President Nixon resigned and Gerald Ford then became the unelected president, leaving the vice presidency open, vacant, what happens then? Well, the second section of Amendment 25 makes that clear. Whenever there is a vacancy in the office of vice president, the president shall be or shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. And when Nixon resigned as president, then Gerald Ford, who had not very long before that been nominated by the president to be vice president and confirmed to be vice president. Well, when Nixon resigned, then Ford became president. And that meant that the vice presidency was vacant. And so he nominated the governor of New York, or former governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, to be the vice president. Both houses confirmed that nomination. And so Nelson Rockefeller became the vice president, did not seek any office thereafter. Well, here's what makes this very interesting, is that this is the first time in American history that we had both an unelected president and an unelected vice president. But anyway, they were still nevertheless chosen by means that the Constitution very clearly authorized. Well, now we go on to question of what happens if the president has not resigned, has not died, and has not been impeached, but he's unable to fulfill the duties of his office because he has COVID-19 or for some other reason. There were some concerns, for example, about President Eisenhower in the 1950s, that Eisenhower had two heart attacks while in office, and whether this affected his fitness to hold office or not. The question has been raised occasionally, sometimes just because the president may have done something that somebody thinks no sane person would have done. But what happens if the president is in office, is, is alive, has not been impeached, but is not able to carry out his duties? Well, here's where Section 3 comes in. Section 3 says... Whenever the president transmits to the president pro tem of the Senate and to the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president as 
acting president. In other words, during that time, let's say if the president says, I'm going into hospitalization for COVID, I expect to be there two weeks or whatever, then he might, in effect, turn over his powers and duties to the vice president. And the vice president then is not the president, but is the acting president. And all that is fairly clear, too. He becomes acting president, which means he can do anything the president can do. But the president is still the president. And whenever the president declares that he is ready to return to office, he will be permitted to do so, and the vice president will go back to being vice president again. Well, again, so far, all of this is fairly clear. But what happens when you have a president who is no longer fit to carry out his duties in the opinion of many, but he doesn't think so. He thinks he's perfectly fit, even though many others think he is not. Well, that's where Section 4 comes in. And Section 4 is the one that's being invoked right now and the one that could be the most controversial. Here's what Section 4 says. We'll read it, and then we'll have to take a break before we discuss its content. Section 4 Whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmits to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. In other words, here we have a situation where the president is the is possibly unfit, but refuses to acknowledge it. So the vice president, and then another body, we'll talk about that after the break, will step in, and he will be the acting president during that time. Okay, and on that note, we will break away for just a few moments. This is Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Facebook recently announced an update to Instagram DMs by introducing a new Messenger experience in the app. More than a billion people already use Messenger. They are bringing some of the best Messenger features to Instagram. I'm Adam Mosseri. I'm the head of Instagram. I'm excited to talk to you today about some of the new messaging features we've got coming out. One of the features I'm most excited about is the fact that people are going to be able to message across apps. So you're going to be able to message your friends on Facebook from Instagram and vice versa. Now, this isn't going to change who you can message or who you can message you. You're still in complete control of both of those things. In fact, we've even built some new controls that are more granular that allow you to decide who exactly can message you. But you'll be able to manage your messages from one app should you so choose. And we think that's critically important, and we also think it's critically important that people have control over their experience. For more information, please visit the Facebook newsroom at about.fb.com news. 
If your credit card bills have gotten out of hand and you care about your credit, call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800-406-0046. 800-406-0046. That's 800-406-0046. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc. 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM 1492. Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation. Commission license number DC83. Service may adversely affect the individual's credit. Non-payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action, not a loan company. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now. 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. policy points and availability vary by state. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are talking about the 25th Amendment, and uh, this is fascinating, Colonel, to learn about uh, why the amendment is in place, you know, the, the situation and the circumstances under which it might be necessary to remove the president from office. And uh, I think when we left off, you were talking about, but what if he doesn't want to go? What then? Exactly. What about the situation where... The vice president and a majority of his cabinet, that's what we mean when we say majority of the principal officers, majority of the cabinet, conclude that he is unfit to serve office. This is probably not some kind of coup they're undertaking. The vice president ran as part of a team, and these cabinet officials have been appointed by the president, so this probably isn't going to be a coup, although it possibly could be. But when... They decide the president is unfit. They transmit to Congress that the president is unfit and that the vice president then becomes acting president until the president is fit. Well, now let's say that after a couple of weeks, the president says, I am now fit. Well, if nobody takes any further action, the president simply resumes the duties of his office once again. He's been under for corona, now he's back. But what if the vice president and the majority of the cabinet don't think that he's fit. They Then they can object, and they have four days to do so. And if they object, then the matter goes to Congress. And Congress will consider whether to declare the president unfit and remove him or, and put the vice president in or 
let him take office. And unless two-thirds of both houses of Congress vote that the president is unfit, then the president is allowed to take his office back. However, there's one other provision of this. This is the real stickler here that we haven't talked about yet, and that is in Section 4 where it says the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide. In other words, let's suppose that the House, or particularly the Speaker of the House, Pelosi, feels that we can't trust the cabinet to make this decision. Then Congress may set up another body to make this decision. And this is where things could really get dangerous. And I'd have to say that looking at the 25th Amendment, I I really think that they didn't adequately provide for this because there is great potential for abuse here. I could see abuse where the cabinet just refuses to acknowledge the president's real state. But I could see abuse where the Congress decides that, well, we want this president removed because we don't like what he's doing. His cabinet is behind him, so they're not going to remove him. So we have to appoint a special body to make that determination. And they can do so. The cabinet or the Congress can establish another body that would make that determination instead of the majority of the cabinet. Now, the proposal that Congressman Pelosi and Raskin have produced called the Pelosi-Raskin bill would set up a commission that would be composed of 17 people, eight people chosen by the Republicans, eight people chosen by the Democrats. They would include medics, former government officials, and various others, eight of each. And these 16 would then choose a chairman. And that committee then would make this decision. But again, if the committee decides the president is unfit and the president doesn't agree that he's unfit, the matter goes to Congress and the president can be removed only if two-thirds of both houses of Congress remove him. But now here's something else that, and by the way, the president, of course, recently tweeted that really the one whose fitness we ought to be challenging here is Nancy Pelosi's unfitness. And unfortunately or fortunately, the Article 25 doesn't provide any basis for that, leaves it up to the voters of her district every two years to decide whether she is mentally fit for office. And if, frankly, if the voters of her district are as crazy as she is, then that's not going to be much of a shield. Anyway, here is another problem in the way this is worded. It talks about the president and, or the vice president and the majority of the cabinet making this decision. But it says majority of the cabinet or such other body as Congress may by law provide. That's a substitute for the majority of the cabinet, but the vice president is involved either way. It's either the vice president and a majority of the cabinet, or the vice president and this other body that Congress has provided. Either way, the vice president is part of this decision, and it looks to me, as I read this, that... Even if the commission were to unanimously say the president should be removed, the vice president has to agree with that, or the commission's finding is not valid. Anyway, this is a strange thing. It has the potential for abuse. It seems right now that unless there were really some very strong grounds for removing the president, Vice President Pence 
would never agree to that. And so even if this bill got through, which I doubt that it will, but even if it did, the president or the, the vice president would not pose any danger to the president here. But on the other hand, a vice president, Kamala Harris, might be very eager to remove President Biden. And she, cooperating with a commission like this, might very easily decide to do this. And so if we're looking to a Biden-Harris ticket or a Harris-Biden ticket, as some have suggested that it might be, this could be a very dangerous situation. Anyway, that is the 25th Amendment. I can see why we needed to tighten up some of the issues here concerning presidential and vice presidential succession. But I really think that when they put it in this form and they simply provided or of such other body as Congress may by law provided, they opened a door to a wide variety of abuses. And an amendment like that should never have been passed without some clear safeguards as to what kind of commission that ought to be. The way it's being drafted right now might sound innocuous, but once that's done, they can change it. So we have a very dangerous situation here, although I really doubt that the Speaker is ever going to get this through Congress, even at the present time. Certainly not through the Senate, even if she did through the House. That is a definite concern. I uh, I, I have to wonder, and I, I'd like to get your take on this, uh, what what does the Constitution do to um, to ensure that we have honest elections? I know that uh, you know there, there's a lot that's left to the states, you know, in handling the elections. But at, at the federal level, are there safeguards built in as as far as how elections are supposed to be handled to keep um, you know one branch from exerting power that it's not supposed to exert in regards to um, how elections are carried out? Basically, elections for federal officers, that is, president and vice presidents and U.S. senators and U.S. congressmen, basically those are determined by the states. Now, of course, we have various provisions. The courts have said that the Equal Protection Clause requires that the legislative districts and congressional districts be properly apportioned. We have prohibited poll taxes and other matters like this, but Basically, that is left to the states. And we're seeing a lot of issues right now about illegal aliens voting, other issues like this. We're hearing about voter suppression, that sort of thing. I would just simply point out this to our listeners, and that is there are two ways that your vote, your right to vote, can be denied. One way is by suppressing you. One way is by not letting you vote. The other way is by canceling out your vote by the vote of an illegal. Either of those are, easily, are equally effective at destroying your right to vote, and we need to be concerned about both. I would only say that state provisions that require voter ID or other means to prevent fraud, to prevent unauthorized voters from voting, I think those are very important, and I'm very concerned about the whole early voting issue. I look at it this way, that unless there's a real need for an absentee ballot in a particular situation, somebody out of town or something, people should vote on the day of the election because some of the most significant things about an election and about the candidates are going to take place in those closing weeks, closing days of the election period. And if I were 
serving on a jury, for example, and in the middle of the defense putting on its case, I sort of said, well, I'm not going to be able to stay for the remainder of the case, but here's my vote. I'm voting this way. Well, that'd be horrible. (laughs) But yet that's what voters do when they're voting early. They're voting before all the facts are in. Okay, an excellent point. Thank you for your answer, Colonel. And again, we invite our listening audience, if you haven't checked out the archives for Constitution Classroom, you can do so at lovingliberty.net. Look under the podcasts and you'll find the entire archive of every Constitution Classroom that uh, the Colonel has recorded. We'll see you next week. Thank you.